This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. very generous introduction and I think you must be speaking of somebody else. I haven't written a book since the year 2000. That much is to be said about my Magnus Opus. It's a pleasure to be here. It's just wonderful. Um, Thanks so much for having me. Uh, This is, as Catherine rightly pointed out, a new project. I'm just at the beginning of it, so uh, please have bearing with me if things are a bit rough at the edges. Um, So basically I'm testing or want to test two rather simple thoughts uh, with you. The first uh, is that medical age assessment um, of asylum seekers is scientifically wanting. And now you might think, who is this guy uh, uh, who is obviously not a scientist, and I confess not to be a scientist. I didn't take a single biology class or something uh, uh, um, when I was studying at university. Um, how is he to make judgments on the scientificality of medical age assessments? I hope I'll be able to convince you that I am, so to say, in the full possession of my senses when I'm saying that. So that's the first argument. Medical age assessments are wanting when it comes to their scientificality. And the second is not so much an argument, but more of a question. How come, if you accept the point, that age assessments are scientifically wanting, how come this hasn't been noticed in a more systematic fashion? I mean, we've heard counter-arguments against age assessments, um, which are about their reliability, uh, which are entering into kind of a stochastic context with the providers of of age assessments. But we haven't heard that much about a basic... uh, Um, critique of um, the scientificality. And I think there is method to that particular madness. There are reasons for that silence. And I'll try to, together with you, to reconstruct the steps in the process of asylum age assessment, just to see how it comes, how it is that we produce some blind spots in that area. That's all I want to do tonight. I hope to be finished after 40, 45 minutes, and then I would really look forward to your questions and comments and your critique. Okay. Um, I produced too many pages, so they tend to fall off this thing. I should subdivide this into two. To start with, I would like you to consider two assumptions, alternative assumptions. The first one would be... Normally, every birth is registered. Second assumption would be normally it is not. Some of us come from states with well functioning civil registration systems. According to UN statistics, which I've checked before uh, during this winter, more than 90% of European states have reported the total number of live births for at least one year 
in a five-year period, 2003 to 2007. So more than 90% of European states have reported the total number of live births for at least one year in the period 2003 to 2007. And uh, that reporting is based on complete civil registries. Now we're moving from that 90% number and Europe to Africa. And in Africa, the corresponding number is 10%. So for a European, it meets little difficulty to obtain a copy of his or her birth certificate and to support with that certificate a claim on age um, before an authority. It is very likely that there is a functioning civil registration system in that European country, and it is uh, not very troublesome, not very burdensome to demand of that European citizen to make use of the civil registration system to get an excerpt and to confront the authority contesting age information uh, on that ground. So placing the burden of proof for age on a European claimant would not be unreasonable under such supporting circumstances. Indeed, a Swede would perhaps be the person best placed to discharge the burden of proof um, on age in an asylum procedure. It's just that Sweden is not a big country uh, producing asylum seekers. So that's a bit uh, of a technical miss here. Um, how about a person from Afghanistan or from Somalia? Coverage of live birth reporting in 2003 was 6% in Afghanistan or for Afghanistan, according to the same data set of UN statistics. Uh, for Somalia, for the year 2006, we have 3%, 3% of all live births that were registered in 2006. Uh, now we could ask, is it really reasonable to put the onus for, for providing information and carrying the risks associated to its correctness on an Afghan and Somali citizen? Are they indeed best placed to carry the burden of proof in, in, or for their age in an asylum procedure? Now, at this stage, when, we're, when we are confronted with the insufficiencies of civil registration systems, it's very tempting to resort to um, medical age assessments. Many assume that radiological examination of tooth mineralization or the development of wrist bones or the clavicle uh, might be helpful because there seems to be an object that you can study. It's just there for you. It's waiting for your examination. And that object is measurable uh, while you study it. And it has a kind of an irresistible aura of, sub of, of objectivity and reliability. Now, there are counter-arguments. Um, skeptics tend to focus on the sizable average error estimates for age uh, assessments uh, in, in, in forensic medicine. And these um, average error estimates, they're counted in years rather than in months. Skeptics also point out that uh, dental aging, uh, which is based on collective data, that this kind of uh, uh, process doesn't capture exceptions to the norm. So um, we do have a critique uh, against medical age assessments. But my point is a different one, a different one than 
the points made by the critics or the skeptics. And I haven't seen my, the point I'm trying to make now in the legal debate. Before making the point, let us just recall what we are doing in medical age assessments. Um, we compare a developmental feature uh, of an individual of unknown age uh, with the average developmental, de de developmental features of a reference group of individuals whose age is known. So we have an unknown, that's the age of a person. Uh, what we do is we look at a particular body part, um, we make an image of that body part, that's not unimportant. We have a technology for doing that. So we're having an image of a particular, of a wrist bone, for example, or a tooth. And what we do now is that we have lots of images of persons whose age is known. So we're making a comparison between the image of the unknown with the images of the known. It's a very methodologically a very simple process to infer age, to infer what is earlier unknown. Now, you see what I'm trying to say. We will not be able to research a Somali reference group composed of individuals whose age is known because we lack a civil registration system that confirms the age in a kind of a neutral third party uh, authoritative way of that control group providing the images. So we are having a reference group that suffers from the same problem that we are suffering from in the asylum procedure with an age contested person. Namely, we have no third party information that is reliable on age. So we're reproducing the problem we're having in asylum law in medicine. Now, I'm not the first person to talk about that. If you enter the forensic medical literature on age assessments, you see that there's a great awareness of the insufficiency of certain studies because uh, the persons who carried out the study were simply, for bureaucratic reasons, unable to ascertain the age of the persons they would be studying. So um, I've seen one article by Schmeling and others who reported in 2006 um, on age assessment in a journal called Forensic Science International. And um, they put up eight minimum requirements for reference group studies to be accepted into forensic practice. So what you do is when you're age assessing, um, you want to draw as much as possible on a relevance on a relevant group to compare to. So um, that's why you would like to get away from old standard studies that are studying, for example, North American referent persons. They are not necessarily useful to the clientele you want to assist in age assessing because they might be coming from Africa or from South Asia. And uh, our colleagues in forensic uh, sciences are the first ones to, to confirm that there are differences when you move across continents in that way because access to nutrition, health, 
the geographical genetical pools, they're all different. So you can't just rely on the development of a wrist bone or a tooth being the same across all humanity, irrespective of provenance of conditions of um, upbringing, etc., etc. So one of the eight requirements uh, posted in that article for reference studies to be accepted by Schmeling and others was that the age indicated by the subjects in the reference study, in the reference group, should be verified. So we're back again here. And then Schmeling and others go on as follows, and I quote, As numerous studies originating from the African continent do not fulfill this requirement, they should be excluded from use in forensic practice. Period. So with one move, with this recommendation, you would throw out all studies of what we think, we thought earlier, would be you know, really close to the person whose age we want to know. So all of these that earlier seem to be knowns, they are indeed unknowns. And therewith, this whole operation becomes, to say the least, uninteresting, irrelevant. What you then do is to, you can say, okay, we can't take the Africans, let's take the North Americans. But at a stage where forensic medicine itself makes clear that there are important differences in developmental features in the skeleton depending on nutrition, health, on geographical and genetic pools, well, you wouldn't be able to eradicate that knowledge. So you would practice something that you have identified to be, well, suboptimal from a scientific point of view. Are you with me on this argument? Are you with me why I'm concerned about this? So it's something which you don't need to be a scientist and the kind of um, laboratory sense to understand. You just understand that they are suffering from the same problem that the asylum procedure suffers, namely the absence of a bureaucratic practice that gives us access to documented chronological age. It's just absent for us, but it's also absent for them, um, the forensic medical experts whom we look to for advice in that situation. So, that's a simple argument, I think. Does it concern only Somalis or only Africans? I would say no. Um, wherever civil registration has been lacking, there is a double effect. The lack of civil registration strikes as much against the reliability of bureaucratic practice of offering, for example, ID documents, as it strikes against the reliability of medical science. This is because medical science is premised on the reliability of bureaucratic practice. We are all going back to one pool of knowledge here in civil registration. Now, if you accept my argument, and I hope you do, you might wonder why much of the discourse on age assessment has been played out elsewhere. This is really something that is concerning me. I like to think that there is a gap between legal and medical knowledge that is suitable for unwarranted authority arguments. Because we do see a practice where <laughs> this is not struck out, where, on the contrary, 
more reliance is put on medical age assessments. I know the UK is a bit different here. I know that you do have judges that are prepared to assess whether um, the scientists providing input on age have stuck to their own methods. I've heard that there is language in judgments where you see that judges really want to control whether the scientists are doing their proper job. But I haven't seen judges that I haven't even seen judgments that have uh, that have discussed this problem, this particular problem. Now, if we want to take it back into the law, we could do so by looking at Article 25.5 in the. Uh, 2013 Procedures Directive, the Recast Procedures Directive. I'll just quote it to you in case you've forgotten the wording. It is about um, medical age assessment for unaccompanied, unaccompanied uh, children. And it, it starts, I won't run the whole quote, it starts by saying member states may use medical examinations to determine the age of unaccompanied minors. I'm not giving, giving you the full quote, but it ends, Article 25.5 ends with a sentence that I quote in full, and this sentence says, if thereafter, after the medical examination, if thereafter member states are still in doubt concerning the applicant's age, they shall assume that the applicant is a minor. That's a new wording. It wasn't there in the old Article 17. Five of the Procedures Directive, which is still in force. This thing has entered into force, but the transposition period hasn't run out. That's 2015 or something. So uh, we need now to start to think about the implications of a wording like this. If thereafter member states are still in doubt concerning the applicant's age, they shall assume that the applicant is a minor. Now, a little thought experiment, you have an asylum officer who is in doubt on alleged age. Um, he or she draws uh, on an age assessment, uh, starts a medical age assessment, and thereafter uh, the results are brought back. Let's say it's a Somali applicant, the results are brought back, and essentially uh, we could imagine the the person, the, the medical expert, the forensic expert, to say, look, we're terribly sorry, we don't have a reference group of Somali, so we can't, we couldn't test the guy you wanted us to test against uh, uh, a proper reference group, because we don't have a Somali reference group, we don't have a documentation of how wrist bones of 17, 18, and 19-year-old Somalis look like. We don't know that. But just to give you something, we took a group of North Americans. Is that okay? Are you satisfied now? Does that eradicate your doubt? And then the asylum officer would say, no, that's not really helpful because, you know, I was in doubt and now I'm at least as much in doubt as I was before. And after the medical expert left the room, the asylum officer goes to the procedure directive and says, member states, if they're still in doubt, they shall assume that the applicant is a minor. Is that the end of the story? Can we end this presentation here and say, okay, if anything, you do, a, after having done a medical assessment of age, you will be in doubt if you have been properly informed about the capabilities of that assessment. You will be in doubt. 
enter Article 25.5, last sentence, you will have to assume that the applicant is a child. Is that a correct reading? You're silent. How shall I interpret that? Okay, this is the first part of this thing. And as I said, it was a very simple argument. Um, let me try to move on. Now, is this applicant really a child? This question can make all the difference in the asylum procedure. I don't need to tell you the many ways in which it can, can make a difference. Answers to this question can be organized in different ways, and all these ways are related to speculation. Now, English not being my native language, I have consulted the Oxford English Dictionary, and I understand that there are uh, different meanings to that term. One now obsolete set of meanings uh, is that speculation may denote the faculty or power of seeing, sight, vision, especially intelligent or comprehending vision. And another also obsolete meaning is the exercise of the faculty of sight, the action or an act of seeing, viewing, or looking on or at, examination or observation. So this is the starting point. I'm sitting down with a person, and that person expresses um, that she or he is a child, or, well, I'm implying that, or it could be implied anyway, the issue of age emerges in that conversation between us. Now, the question, is the applicant really a child? For that question to be asked, you have to have an interview situation, you have to have an asylum officer, you have to have a conversational setting. Now, in that setting, the um, asylum officer is hosting doubts, and this doubt is based on the officer's act of seeing or looking on or at the applicant. Hence, this archaic meaning of speculation. This is where we start. In that act of seeing or looking at the child, the officer is thinking or saying to himself, I just cannot imagine this applicant is a child. This is the moment of doubt. And the officer's vision is, again to draw on these archaic meanings, a comprehending vision uh, that might lead to further questioning, to the examination of documents, and as a last resort to a medical examination for the purpose of age assessment. As we will see, the aspects of vision and image um, in speculation undergo a profound change in the sequence from a doubt in a conversation, in a kind of a conversation setting, to a doubt that is transformed into a probability percentage in medical examination, after medical examination. So the question of age in asylum always starts with an act of speculation in this traditional sense. The officer's hypothesis that this applicant is not a child emerges out of a sense that the applicant must not enjoy children's rights illegitimately. So there's an aspect of fairness here. Now, while the extent of these rights afforded to children might differ across uh, national jurisdictions, they are generally more favorable than corresponding rights afforded to adults. The distinction in treatment is based on the concept of maturity. 
if I may go to you to the 1990 Convention on the Rights of the Child together with you we have wording, a wording in the preamble that informs us about the intentions of states it says that um, contracting states were bearing in mind, and I quote, bearing in mind that as indicated in the Declaration of the rights of the, on the Rights of the Child, the child, by reason of his physical and mental immaturity, needs special safeguards and care, including appropriate legal protection before as well as after birth. End of quote. Now, the ethics of affording special protection to the child as an immature person is being altered, however, as soon as we move from the preamble of the CRC to the first operative article. Because the first operative article, Article 1, says that for the purposes of the present convention, a child means every human being below the age of 18, unless under the law applicable to the child, majority is attained earlier. So what we do, we, use, we move from immaturity to the question of majority. And the question of, is that person under 18 years? I think that's an important shift. It is not the immature human being that the CRC protects as a child. It protects the human being below a particular age as a child. So we shouldn't immediately point at the sciences as the kind of, or those who are effectuating a move towards number games, stochastics. It's actually the lawyers that started that in the CRC. You move from the question of immaturity. Um, that question is actually provoked by a sentiment of fairness, could say that fairness, consideration of fairness, are at the source of uh, wishing to treat children differently because if a person is not mature enough to function adequately in a legal procedure, you should offer him or her safeguards, you should offer him or her resources that would basically improve procedural standing. It's a very simple way of reasoning. So, now, you see that the fairness argument isn't as easily and simply connected to the argument on majority when you are just assuming that with the age of 18 you will be sufficiently mature. Um, that's a presumption that should be rebuttable in the name of fairness, but it is not, neither under the CRC nor in the asylum procedure. We're, we're often... Um, we're devoting much attention to chronological age because we have made that switch um, rather than dealing with the issue of maturity in an individualized process we've said okay we collectivize we, we regard people who are 18 as sufficiently mature to carry the full weight of their procedural obligations okay so what we have now is that we are moving from the original concern of immaturity to what we could call a proxy criterion of majority. And that kind of move spawns consequences. So that proxy is age. It's presumed that the person... Um, oh, let me say, it's, it's worthwhile to keep an eye on what happens with that kind of 
uh, transposition of maturity to majority, of a quality to a numeral to a quantity, if you so wish. Um, we should keep in mind that as a way of getting back to the question of maturity, even in medical assessments, I'll get, get to that later. So if my task is to determine whether my conversation partner is immature in some sense, it will be clear to me that in the final analysis I have to pass judgment in that matter. And that's me. It will be difficult to pass judgment, but there's no alternative. Somebody has to do it, so it might as well be me passing judgment. By contrast, if my task is to determine whether my conversation partner is above or below this age threshold of 18, I will feel at loss. I will have the urge to consult some form of authority. I want a population registry. I want an ID card. I want a wrist bone. I want a tooth. I want an object. I want something that I can rely on here. That's a decisive switch here. So what I'm trying to say is that the question of immaturity is linked to a conversational setting where the responsibility will be on me as the interlocutor who is the decision maker on age. Whereas if I move over to the question of 18 years or not, um, the focus will move away from the conversational setting towards something that can confirm whether the fact of age or uh, the fact of being 18 uh, is at hand or not. That's, I think, an important shift and it ex explains both the lure and also the dangers of age, age assessment as a procedure. What is tempting, what is nice about this shift from personal responsibility for judgment to the question of majority is that I can share responsibility with the forensic expert. I feel that I can rely on, I can lean on what a third party provides me with who is outside the legal process. And even better than that, if that third party is legitimized by uh, her or his capacity as a scientist, that might make things even better. So from the solitude, from the subject in front of me and from the solitude of my own judgment, I turn away towards objects. And these objects permit me to connect to the judgment of others. So this manner of looking can no longer rely on the human senses alone. I have a conversation with somebody, I'm listening to the timbre of his or her voice, I'm looking at the person or not, I'm sensing that there's unrest in the room or tranquility, um, probably other senses are engaged in this too. I would try to avoid the terms like holistic, but there is a kind of a, an engagement of my whole, whole capacity to sense uh, different from an assessment of an image uh, made by a forensic expert who basically these practices exist, at least they do in Sweden. Uh, the minimum version, the minimalistic version of uh, medical age assessment is that you simply 
make x-ray images of the person in question who are then looked at by a forensic expert, a radiologist. So the person, uh, the radiologist doesn't have to engage with the age-contested person in an interview. There is no anamnesis, there is no asking about general health, etc. There's just the looking at the image. What you do is that you are shifting from a conversation situation to the situation of uh, analyzing an image from imaginations of age based on the conversation to the analysis of an image. Now we are moving away from this archaic meaning of speculation, of just seeing, to a more contemporary meaning of speculation. Um, this looking that the forensic expert is doing, that's a conjectural consideration or meditation, an attempt to ascertain or anticipate something by probable reasoning. That's what a medical expert does. What we get out of an age assessment is uh, uh, a certain percentage uh, indicating the probability that the person is 18.2, 17.2, no, sorry, 19.2, 18.2, or 17.2 years. That's the case in dental age assessment, where you're assuming that uh, the teeth, uh, uh, the developmental curve of the teeth is finished with 19.2 years, and then you're calculating back a year at a time. So it's a completely different mindset here, um, and I think um, the naive way of just looking has been, trans uh, has been replaced here uh, by something much more specific that really tries to, to um, anticipate something, uh, in this case the outcome the, uh, of an assessment, by probable reasoning. So let's just pause here. What have we done? The question of the applicant's age has been reorganized as an interpretation of a radiological image. Another discipline has inserted itself into the process of producing and interpreting images, and that's medicine. Radiological devices produce the images that are then compared with pre-existing sets of images to calculate age probabilities. The urge to complement the age assessment of the single asylum officer with something more, in quotation marks, objective, have marshaled a technology, another discipline, an expert, and the knowledge these three are producing together. So you're really doing a lateral move here from law to medicine. And within medicine, technology is employed and a stochastic mode of reasoning. So qualitatively there's an enormous difference in the way we are reasoning and an enormous need of inter integrating those differences uh, in reasoning. Now we should, we should acknowledge that within medicine you actually get the same strategical choice between having a conversation or an image analysis. Um, I understand this is the case in the UK too. In Sweden, you could either go for a pediatric entry into age assessment. That is, you would ask a pediatric expert, how old is that person? 
the pediatric uh, expert would make a full anamnesis, talk to the person, talk, discuss possible um, developmental issues or problems in earlier youth of that person. Um, the pediatric would look at genital development um, and uh, the person might be sent uh, as a complement to a radiological screening and the pediatric expert might also then via the imagery look at certain developmental features, for example the wrist bone or the clavicle. So you have an entry through a conversation which would then move on to an image analysis within medicine. The thing is, or let me put it like that, I understand that social workers play an important role in age assessment in the UK. They do not in Sweden. Amazingly, you can discard uh, the information provided by social workers in court cases as being of so little uh, importance, evidentiary importance, that they're not even mentioned. Um, you see the kind of Protestantism uh, that has moved into the Swedish state seems to put a high trust in this particular form of imagery. I'm still a bit astonished about that. We had a leading judgment a couple of weeks ago in January 2014 by the uh, Migration Court of Appeal, which is the last instance in the Swedish system, which basically discarded the evidential value of the oral testimony of the applicant the evidential value of the written testimony of a social worker, um, and which then, after having discarded these factors, moved on to uh, the taskira, the identity document of the Afghan applicant. And that was had no value whatsoever because the court deemed that um, you couldn't verify, as there was, they didn't talk about population registries, but you couldn't verify that the that the information provided in the Tuskeria would really match against public records. So the Tuskeria had no evidential value whatsoever. So after having discarded one piece of evidence after the other as having zero evidential value, what you are left with is a medical, a medical assessment that is befested with problems that has an error margin that is very disquieting, but it's the only evidence that has some evidential value. In the particular case, there was, um, let me see whether I can get the percentages right, there was a very high percentage, 80 or 90% or something, uh, that pointed that the person was 18, 18.2 years old. Um, so in that case, the court saw this as an indication that the person would be uh, an adult and should be treated like one. And on that uh, ground, he was denied protection. Otherwise, had he been a child, he wouldn't have been protected under the Swedish asylum system. So what I'm trying to say, out of a scarcity of what seem to be hard facts, what seem to be robust uh, evidence, you're going for uh, medical assessments, but within medical assessments, you also get a, uh, um, you get choices. You can either go for a rather complex assessment that includes a conversational setting and adds image analysis, and which puts the pediatric expert in a situation that is not too unlike that of a judge, where you have to make up it, your mind what it all means. 
Whereas if you just consult a radiologist, which was done in the particular case I just referred to, um, of course the radiologist doesn't have to make up her or his mind in the same sense. You do your thing, you calculate your probabilities, and you're passing on the result to the judge by saying, here are the percentages, we all understand what it means, doesn't it? And then you basically walk away from the case. Now, let me see whether I can find back to some form of argument here. What is worrying in that situation, in the particular Swedish case, but in any case where you're drawing on image analysis that leads to stochastic reasoning, is that the medical interpretation of the image taken by radiological units cannot be used outright in the legal procedure. You cannot take a result which says... It's that 2.5% likelihood that the person is 17,2. Was it 16%? I'm not getting the... Don't add up the percentages now, but my mathematics has always been bad. You get something like this. You get a table corresponding to certain ages. Again, don't add this up. It doesn't work. But this is the way it looks... It looks okay, 95%, that's pretty impressive. That must be saying something. So probably I, as a lawyer, should be looking at this. And 19.2 is more than 18, so the person is an adult. Does it work like this? Should it work like this? Now, let's not focus on the error margins now. That has been done in the literature, and I think that's very valid. But for want of time, we can't enter into it. I just want to focus on the translation process from medicine to law. Now, you would like there to be some protocol for that translation situation. You would like there to be some kind of standard that tells us when we get a stochastic table like that, we use a certain key and what we then get is some kind of correspondence to standards of proof that we are using or used to using, like it is likely that the person is 18 years old or it's likely that the person is 17 years old. The Swedish standard of proof for age is uh, likely. It's the likelihood of the person being a child that is at stake and the burden of proof, if you permit me that digression into law is put on the applicant. The applicant has to make his or her identity, nationality and age likely. Now, what does this mean for that term, that standard of proof um, that age uh, under 18 has to be likely? We don't know. The point is that there are no fixed protocols that help us to translate from medicine to law. This is the big void of the expert discourse. It's well acknowledged in the literature on um, how to incorporate medical expertise in, into legal reasoning. And it is described as uh, the error of the third kind or the type 3 error that um, the medical experts are providing the right answer to the wrong question. 
In this case, to get back to the first part of my presentation, um, why is it the right answer? Well, because if the medical expert does her or his job, the stochastic probabilities will look like that. So if he or she follows uh, a forensic science protocol, this will be the outcome, so it's the right answer. But it's the wrong question, because the question was not how likely is it that the developmental stage of the Afghan applicant uh, corresponds to the development stage of a North American uh, uh, reference group uh, of persons 19.2 years, 18.2 years, and 17.2 years. That was not the question the lawyer asked. The lawyer simply asked, how old is that person? But the trans question was translated um, by the medical expert into something he or she could deal with. And that has simply to do with the availability of material. So the right answer to the wrong question, because this wasn't the question the lawyer asked. There is obviously a problem when we try to retranslate the answer back into law. That's just a big mess. Now, there are two strategies. You can either acknowledge that it is a big mess and out goes the strategical device of medical age assessment. Or, and that is the standard practice, not only in the asylum area, but in many areas where we are drawing on medical expertise, we as lawyers, I am a lawyer, we can't make sense of it, but we do experience that we are making that we are deriving strategic gains from it. So what we do instead is that we project the truth into that other discipline of forensic medicine. And we're saying, well, it's self-evident that this stochastic table means that it is unlikely that the person is um, under 18 years. So even by according some kind of a benefit of the doubt, we would arrive at the conclusion that the person is an adult and has to be, uh, has to be dealt with as an adult in the protection part of his or her claim. There is no argument to support that uh, conclusion. That it's an apodictic uh, conclusion that is made in the asylum procedure. I understand why it is tempting. I understand that um, if, I, if I'm faced with the magnitude of the translation task, I probably look for an avoidance strategy. And we would all feel to be overburdened by a task like that one. So I wonder whether the feeling of insufficiency that I'm trying to you know, share with you uh, in, I'm insufficient as a lawyer to provide for that translation process. That, that feeling of insufficiency, I think, is all too soon displaced by a much stronger feeling, that of having incorporated a truth, however incomprehensible, into one's own work of age assessment. It is the truth derived from the expertise of that other discipline that, um, that I'm incorporating as an asylum officer. That seems to be a paradox. The less I understand what the other discipline is doing, uh, the more I can relate to it as an incontestable truth. And 
presented that way in my judgment. It is science, this gesture seems to suggest, and it is beyond the lawyer to contest it. For reasons I started with, I think it's exactly the wrong way of dealing with it. Now, finally, and I'll end with that, before, without medical uh, assessments, uh, the, the asylum officer who would need to reach a decision on age would ask two questions. One would be on trust, and one would be about making sense. The trust question is simply, can I trust my own judgment on age? A subjective judgment, nevertheless a judgment. The second question would be, um, how can I make sense of this towards others? How can I formulate my sense of the applicant's age in relation to the standard of proof? So, can I trust my own judgment on age? And how can I formulate my sense of the applicant's age in relation to the standard of proof? Now, after having included a medical assessment, uh, the asylum officer, the decision taker, uh, would ask different questions under each of these headings. Under the trust heading, he or she would ask, what average error of estimate of the medical age assessment method is acceptable in the legal assessment of the case at hand? That's a rather technical question. And frankly speaking, I wouldn't know how to answer it, and I suspect that lawyers tend not to be able to answer it. On the making sense question, it's completely different. How shall the outcome of the medical uh, age assessment, this probability percentage, how shall it be transposed into the discipline of law and the language of the standard of proof? So what you get in the first situation when the whole decision is vested in one person, there is a kind of an internal clarity at best and the problem is now, is this clarity sufficiently robust within me? Do I really trust myself? And how do I communicate it when I trust myself? The second question is much more, the second situation is much more complex because there you have a third party intervention for which the legal decision taker nevertheless has to, to take responsibility for. So you get a problem of trust but you also get a problem of communication because you can't communicate all the premises built into the medical age assessment because you are not a forensic expert. You have to trust the input from a third party, from an expert, on how do you make that uh, into your own assessment, your own evidentiary assessment. That's extremely difficult, if not impossible. I merely want to content myself to mark the shifts. I'm not able today to provide any answers whether there is really no technical way of agreeing on a kind of a translation table. I suspect there is not, but um, today I just content myself to mark the fact that there is such um, a translation work presupposed but probably not carried out. Now, I think I've come full circle. Um, let me end by just reiterating what I've done. I started by pointing out the speculative nature of skeletal age assessments uh, in the absence of reliable civil registration. was my first and very simple point. I then moved on to a different form of speculation 
unfolding in the intersubjective encounter between applicant and assessor and compare its, its communicative consequences to the form of speculation unfolding in medical age assessment. Two different words. If I'm forced to choose between talking to people or looking at images of their body parts, I would prefer talking to people. I would prefer basing judgment on the conversation. Uh, why would I do that? I think the risks and dangers of subjectivity in this area are very clear. And I think we're doing right in that we are, we are, we are underscoring the existence of these risks and dangers by pointing to the interlocutor, the decision maker, and saying, you are responsible ethically, if not juridically, for the outcome of your subjective assessment. Things are getting much more messy if you, as a decision maker, are moving through this whole messy circle and you are incorporating incommensurable data into your decision making, which allows you, at the very least, with the internal moral possibility of devolving responsibility to the third party. Um, so that, I would think, makes the sense of ownership of the age assessment judgment much less acute. And I think that's a dangerous thing. So I'd I would like to issue a warning to people who think that they can move towards more, within quotation mark, objective age assessments by image analysis, and to those who would move into a conversational setting, I would just simply say, I wish you good luck. Thanks for your patience. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.